Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining today. Today we are going to discover <laughs> some, uh, some fascinating insight into the notion that you and I... Mm, that chair is in the way. Well, forgive me. Okay, let's start that again. We are going to discover fascinating insight into the notion that you and I can achieve peace of mind, inner tranquility, only by virtue of developing betochen. That is to say, if you thought that if only you were to discover a get-rich-quick scheme and you'd have an assured source of livelihood, parnasa, or abundance, that that would give you this tranquility, this inner contentment that you seek, think again. Because every vocation has its occupational hazard. Workplace accidents are a fact of life. And as such, how would you ever really have peace of mind? This is what takes us into the next piece of the Shara B'Tochen. Let me remind you that Rabbeinu Bechaya, living a thousand years ago in the medieval times, uses the metaphor or the example of alchemy. Not because he believed it was possible to necessarily turn silver into gold or iron into silver, but rather because in his day, that was the get-rich-quick scheme that people anticipated or believed in. Maybe today it would be, I'm going to open a marketing company or I'm going to go into some kind of technology business and in no time I'm going to be able to harness the power of social media and the internet and I'll be an overnight millionaire. And suppose you actually are smart enough to create a phenomenal computer program and then you sell it and then you're going to maintain it and you're guaranteed success. And then you say, I'll have peace of mind. Rabbeinu Bechaya says, you won't. So if it's peace of mind you're looking for, then go home to the Torah, to Yiddishkeit, and to Betochen. Only by fortifying your faith, only by being able to actualize that belief in the form of Betochen, we will be able to achieve it. So now you know what we're going to talk about. Let's do it. I will quote from the actual book, Sha'ar HaBetochen, from the actual Chivis Alavovis. And those of you who wish to follow along, if you happen to have the new Kihat version, we're going to be on page 16. I'm going to freely translate, so it might not be the exact same English translation. And I have a couple of disagreements, actually, with the translator. So I'm going to read, translate, and explain 
to the best of my ability. We have, in the first portion, illustrated the difference between the peace of mind achieved by the alchemist versus the peace of mind achieved by the person of faith. And now, Vahasheni. Here is part two, or the second reason why the one possessing Betochen is better poised to achieve that coveted state of inner tranquility. Kibal hachamia, and we're speaking about the alchemist merely as a metaphor. But the alchemist, or the person who's involved in computer technology, invariably, tzarech lemaisim ulemalachas. It's got to work. Now, I was wondering to myself, why does Rabbeinu B'chaya conjecture the image of alchemy? Why doesn't he talk about somebody who won the lottery? Or somebody who discovered buried treasure? Or got a, a will from some long-lost relative? Because you can't really plan those things. That's, uh, if you happen to stumble on a treasure, well, lucky you. And if you happen to be a trust fund baby, well, lucky or maybe unlucky you. That's not a plan. That's not something a person can actually do something about. Whereas alchemy, it would seem, or something like that, has the possibility of attaining success in a relatively easy way. I mean, you're turning silver into gold. <laughs> it's a great return, and you didn't even have to mine it. So, in any particular age, whatever it may be that people might see as the proverbial alchemy of the day, an easy way to make a living, a quick way to get rich, which this is something that anybody can strive for. You can try to figure out what's up right ahead of the curve. Where is society going next? Where is technology taking us? What's the tomorrow? What's tomorrow's success story in the financial markets and business? So the person who is going to plan to do this invariably is still going to have to work. That's point one. And point two is that people who don't work, people who put no effort whatsoever in, are rarely, if ever, happy. In the language of our sages, the person who doesn't work is eating nahama de chisufa. It's a metaphoric terminology. It means bread of shame. People don't feel good if they didn't work hard at something, if they didn't earn it. The alchemist can feel good. He's earned his bread or his gold. He just did it the get-rich-quick scheme way. But he still has to work. He's still got to work. He still has malacha. He still has a vocation. There are still the, if you will, the trade, the procedure, the methodology, whatever it may be that you are engaging in. So, if you're doing so, and obviously, we're not talking about somebody who just proverbially gets lucky, although I'm not sure that the person actually gets lucky when they win the lottery. In fact, studies, copious studies done, have shown that people a year after winning the lottery were a lot less happier than they were before they won the lottery. Again, 
the bread of shame syndrome. The money that comes without effort is never really appreciated. But in our situation, we have a person who's working. Of course he's working, and he feels good about that. And he knows that without that hard work, he will not attain his goal. Of course he's got to put some effort in. Of course he's got to work. Yeah, but he works two days a week. And then he's on the golf course for two days a week. And then he heads up to his cottage or his boat for the other two days a week. He's not working hard. He's working smart, he says. I found the quick way to be able to make a living and get rich. But he still has got to work. And so, when he's working, invariably, the problem will always present itself that every vocation has an occupational hazard. The efsher, now, Rabbeinu Bechaya is speaking about the technicalities of alchemy, ridiculous as it may sound to you, but understand this in the metaphoric sense. We invoke alchemy not as a reality, but as a parable. So, if you were to speak about alchemy, there would be fumes. You're working with uh, metals, you're working with heat, that would be the occupational hazard. You can do this, but there's a risk involved. And mind you, in every vocation, there's a risk involved. There's always the possibility of what we would call in the 21st century language, a workplace accident. You might even die. I find it very interesting that Rebbeinu Bechaya goes on to say, Yimisuhu reichom ashonam." The fumes, or the smoke, the chemicals, im with the continuous or diligent amount of time that is spent working. The long hours he might put in, and invariably when people are turning silver into gold or iron into silver, they'll work those long hours. They get caught up in their work. They want to get their work done. And so they're spending a lot of time on this. And the more time they spend with it, the greater the possibility for something going wrong. So there's always going to be a little bit of anxiety. To be sure, if somebody's working with poison, with fumes that can kill, that's simply unwise. That person is risking their life. There's no reason to assume that Rabbeinu Bechaya is framing his example with a person who risks his or her life, especially because alchemy was not known to have fatal results for most of those who dabbled in or tried to turn silver into gold. But invariably, when you're exposing yourself to odors or to chemicals or to gases for an extended period of time, you may become overexposed. And that can be dangerous. You never know when perhaps you will react to certain chemicals in a particular way or when the fusion of particular chemicals or fumes will come together to release something noxious. This may be very distant. It may be something which is not enough of a worry to stop a person from engaging in it, but to say that there is no anxiety whatsoever is simply untrue. In other words, everybody's got anxiety. You might be in the, what they call, cushiest of jobs. You're comfortable. You don't have to work very hard. Things go well for you. 
something can always go wrong. And because people know that something can always go wrong, invariably, they're going to experience some anxiety. So what you thought would bring you peace of mind or inner tranquility didn't actually do so. It just gave you a different form of anxiety. In the words of the commentary that was written by the Patlechem, he says, Lamaila, in the first, at the first comparison between the alchemist and the person of Betochen, we talked about the materials needed. So yeah, you have an easy way to make a living, you still need to find the materials. And there's never a guarantee they'll always be available. So you're a little worried. You've got some anxiety. You're anxious about a shift in the market. Supply and demand can always change, and that can impact your brilliant scheme, despite the fact that you had it so carefully planned, and success seemed so likely and assured. Now, says the Paslechem, we speak not about materials, now we speak about the work itself, the vocation per se. There's reach hasamen, there's the fumes that are generated by these chemicals. And they could be dangerous. In the words of the Ned of Akedesh, and I believe that his commentary here is key or critical, because if a person's working with toxic fumes, that's called risking your life. That's downright dangerous. There's no reason to make the assumption that Rabbeinu Bachaya is talking about a person who found a get-rich-quick scheme by risking his life. That's not a great way to get rid of anxiety, risking your life. Some people might do it, they enjoy the thrill, but it's not an anxiety-free way to live. The point Rabbeinu Bechaya is trying to emphasize time and again here is that Betochen gives us the inner peace we crave. That it is possible to live with no anxiety whatsoever. To be absolutely calm, cool, and collected, in fact, relaxed at every moment of time. So clearly the person wouldn't actually be risking their life by engaging in toxic or dangerous poisonous fumes. Yet, he says, The problem isn't the fumes per se, the problem is the accumulative impact that nobody really knows about. Nobody's sure of what happens when you breathe in or ingest a certain amount of fumes, or when you're exposed to a certain amount of radio waves or radioactivity. So because nobody is certain of when you might cross the threshold into danger, there's always some anxiety that's nibbling away at you. And he says, because of his diligence, there's an anxiety that eats away. And something interesting I've learned is that all successful people, as a rule, they work really hard. They may have lots of bells and whistles. They get to enjoy life, but they work hard. Everybody works hard. Everybody toils. Even if you have one of those magical schemes, 
Invariably, there are times when you have to roll your sleeves up and sweat. And that will oftentimes be compounded with the anxieties and the worries and the concerns. Maybe it won't work this time. The Toy Valvonon says that the Hasmodas that the diligence here is bitsiruf. You have to connect this, he says. The, the Ruach, the, the Yimisu, Rechami says, these are Samim Hamamisim, these are poisonous fumes. But the poisonous fumes alone do not kill, it's only because there is an overexposing that we are concerned. At what point is the exposure considered to be dangerous? Nobody really knows. And that's the problem. It has already happened in our modern era that people were exposed to particular fumes or particular radioactivity only later to discover that it robbed them of their health. And of course, not everybody is created equal in a physical and material sense. Some people react to fumes in a toxic or noxious fashion, and for others, it doesn't seem to make a difference. It's pretty clear that, for example, smoking is a very bad idea. And it will compromise your health. And yet, I myself met a person who was 99 years old who was still smoking a pack a day. Would he have lived till 150 if he hadn't smoked? Hard to believe. Doctors don't really know the answer. Most people will react badly to filling their lungs with smoke. It's logical that smoking is really bad for you. You're putting poison or toxins in your body on a daily basis. And yet, there are some people who, for whatever reason, simply aren't compromised by it. So not everything is able to kill everybody. Having said that, Hatzad Hashava Shebinehem, the common denominator, is anxiety because nobody is certain. Uncertainty breeds anxiety, and that leads to fear. And that leads to stress, and stress kills. So if you have struck it rich, found the secret, it doesn't mean you live an anxiety-free life. It doesn't mean you don't have stress. The occupational hazard or the stress or the overexposure or a synergy of the above can easily kill you. Having said that, when we contrast this with the person of faith, the person who puts absolute trust in Hashem, he's got real clear betochen that Hashem takes care of him and he doesn't worry. Let God worry for me. I have no reason to be anxious or concerned. God will provide for me. What I need, I will receive. What I don't receive, I didn't need. Why should I worry? Why should I be concerned? Says the person who has true betachen, as we have learned throughout the previous episodes. Bevitcha mehapigoyim, he is secure or certain from the occupational hazard or workplace accident. Now, one moment. 
doesn't mean that the person who has betachen doesn't go to work. There is such a school of thought. It is not commonly accepted. The Shara Betochen is pretty clear about the notion that every one of us is required to roll his sleeves up and work hard. At the same time, we learned that despite the fact that our hard work seems to have earned us our keep, in fact, the success is a gift from God. It's only that Hashem wants His world to function in a natural manner. So, He makes you and expects you to work hard. And it might even look like your hard work is what brings success. But we all know that there are some people that work really hard and they aren't successful anyway. They can blame it on any number of things. The point is, hard work is never a guarantee. There are people who hardly work. We call them lucky. But that's really just blessed by Hashem. The upshot is that success is not the result of our efforts. It isn't simple arithmetic like hard work and hard work equal success. Hard work and hard work can equal heartbreak. It can equal anxiety. It can equal exhaustion. That's certain. That it will bring you success, nobody can be assured. We believe that ultimately everything comes from Hashem. Because the Almighty created a world which necessarily has to allow for the possibility to choose freely between that which is good, righteous, and moral, and between that which is not good, and that which is immoral and inappropriate, that it will necessarily seem as if God has removed Himself from the equation. It will not be simple arithmetic that do the mitzvahs and magically you're sustained. We have to make the proverbial vessel. The challenge for us is despite the fact that we work so hard, and so smart, and so diligently, we do so with the knowledge that ultimately this is what's required or asked of us, but it is not the true source of our success. So we don't attribute more importance to it than is necessary, and as such, we can be free of anxiety. I have nothing to worry about. I know that Hashem will provide for me. He promises to. I just need to do my part as well as I can and know that the rest is in Hashem's hands. And I'm at peace. I'm fully tranquil. I don't worry. I don't get anxious. I don't have to be concerned because I know Hashem loves me and is providing for me. That is the formula of absolute faith. That's the meaning of betachen. Rabbeinu Bachaya says that the person who has betochen, liboi batuach mimtsoisarois, his heart is secure from anything evil or bad that might unfold. Whatever God brings him, for him it'll be a source of happiness and of joy. Vitarpoi? And his needs, his livelihood, it arrives in peace, in serenity, without anxiety, and without worry. 
Vishalva. It comes to him in a restful and in a calm fashion. Kamesha Omar, as the psalmist says, and here we refer to the second verse in one of the most famous chapters of the entire book of Tehillim, Psalm 23. King David says, In green pastures you lie me down. On peaceful waters you guide me. Let me explain a little bit. Because I'm going to guess that you're thinking now, really? Has a person who trusts in Hashem never experienced a setback? Has a workplace accident never happened when the people there had betochen? Can anybody be so sure of that? That doesn't sound reasonable, does it? Well, let's take a look and see what the commentaries say about this. Because on the surface, it certainly would appear that Rabbeinu Bechaya is somewhat overreaching in making these guarantees that as long as you have faith and trust, everything is going to be fantastic. Let's take a look and see what the commentaries have to say. The Pas Lechem seems to address this very issue. He says, The person who trusts in Hashem is bibitcha me'apgoyim. He's secure, sure, has no anxiety about a workplace accident. Because he trusts in Hashem, says the Pas Lechem. Liboy batuach azman ha'asit. Not only is he calm right now, not only is he relaxed, but also he doesn't have anxiety about the future, which is unknown. And the unknown invariably causes fear. We have a fear of the unknown. So how could he not be fearful about the unknown when he doesn't know what the future is going to bring? Says the Paslechem, Shaloi Gimtsoehu Ra'o. Evil is not coming his way. The Fishyeshlacha Adam Shahu Shaykhain Batah Bahashem. It is possible for a person to have trust in God right now, but he's not so sure about the future. Right now, he says, I'm relaxed. I know Hashem is providing for me now. I can see Hashem is providing for me now. But I don't know what's going to happen in a week, a month, a year from now. Who knows? Who knows what kind of evil lurks in the distant and unknown future? The Pas Lechem acknowledges the question that we're asking. He says, when it says in the Shara Betochen, after saying that the person who has faith and trust has no fear of things going wrong, the Shara Betochen then adds, And whatever does come from God, 
That'll be for him as a source of joy. What do you mean whatever is going to come from God? It's all going to be good. Says the Paslechem. It is impossible for a person to be absolutely certain about tomorrow. Ah, and here I am telling you we can live with certainty. You just have to learn how to trust. And the Paslech acknowledges you can't say that. Are you going to say that the Baal HaBetochen, that the person who has trust in Hashem, will never experience a setback? In his or her whole life, with the not tzaddikim who experienced terrible trauma, suffering, even catastrophe? The reality, as we know and see it, contradicts this very, very optimistic statement. And the thing, therefore, is this. Achar shahu batuach once a person has attained absolute trust in Hashem, full certainty that God Almighty is going to provide, that Hashem will not do anything, Hashem will only do what is good for him. In Cain, if so, Kol asher ehu, whatever comes, whatever is brought to him by Hashem, yekabel He will accept it with a state of joy. We're not talking about a disaster that happens and then you have to be matzdik esadin, then you have to accept upon yourself the judgment that Hashem has meted out. As we illustrated many an episode ago, the Rebbe contrasts these two very different parts of Torah theology. That on one hand, we are required to have betochen. We are expected to trust in Hashem even when we don't see a natural or rational way for things to turn out okay. And at the same time, when things don't go well, we then have a sacred duty and a responsibility to be matzik esadin, not to question God, but rather to accept God's judgment and to say that in the end, Hashem is the tzaddik and everything He does is right. And the Rebbe himself points out that there seems to be a bit of a contradiction here. Which one is it? Are you sure that Hashem is going to do everything that's actually good for you? Or is one required to accept Hashem's judgment? That means it's judgment. It's an awful catastrophe. It's a terrible situation. The ways of Hashem are a mystery. Hashem's righteousness is like majestic mountains. Hashem's judgment is like being at the mouth of Tohim Rabbah, the deep abyss. It's a mystery. We cannot understand it. It's impossible for us to process. It's impossible for us to fathom, to try to come up with any explanation or understanding. And both are true. As the Rebbe once explained, at a chof of Fabrengen, of Fabrengen commemorating the, commemorating the Yerzeit Yilula of his holy father, who was sent into exile, lived literally a 
pain-filled, difficult existence, which resulted in a, literally a destruction of his health and an untimely passing. And the Rebbe said, when a Yid is faced with difficult circumstances, the Torah responses, I do not express fear. A Yid says, kel Hashem is my God of deliverance. Evtach veloi efchad. I am going to find faith. I am going to trust Hashem. I will not be afraid. But what if something happens? I trust Hashem. I put my full trust in Hashem, and as such, I experience no anxiety whatsoever. When or if, God forbid, Hashem has something else in mind, once I cross that threshold, then my attitude must shift and change. Then I go from betochen to tzidukadim. Then I go from security and surety and certainty that Hashem loves me and will do what is good for me in an overt, obvious, and clear way. I move into the level in which I have to now accept Hashem's judgment, knowing that God's thoughts, God's view is impossible for a human being to appreciate or to fathom. We have to accept on pure faith the judgment that Hashem has meted out, it certainly does seem contradictory. It's a question of a Yiddishkeit approach to a circumstance. How does Torah want us to respond? What does the Creator ask of us when we are in a daunting set of circumstances? The answer is that as long as there is hope, we are required to live with betochen, ruling out anxiety, forgetting fear, and trusting in Hashem implicitly. And if indeed it turns out it's not so, then we have to accept Hashem's judgment. But the Paslechem is not speaking about that here. The Paslechem is saying that even when a mishap occurs, even when there is that workplace accident, Betochen says, I know that this is for the very best. It doesn't seem that it's my best now, but I will discover, in fact, that it is. I want to tell you a very timely story. Couldn't be more timely. Somebody I know very well, that I'm very close to, was prepared to lease the penthouse of the South Tower that collapsed, the Champlain Towers that collapsed last week. The penthouse that he was negotiating over no longer exists. In the end, it was too expensive. And get this, he didn't have the money because three deals had gone south. And at the time, he was very frustrated. Why did these deals go south? Now, it's not for any of us to question Hashem's judgment. It's not for any of us, chas v'shalom, heaven forfend, to suggest that those who were lost in that awful 
awful catastrophe in some way is, are deserving that the person who was saved is somehow better. The ways of Hashem are a mystery. This is something we can never understand, something we can never wrap our heads around, ever, nor should we want to. That's not my point at all. My point is that losing three deals, which seemed at the time like an awful, terrible thing to happen, all those months put into the deals and nothing. A waste of time, a waste of energy, a waste of money. Turned out to be the thing that saved his life. So you see, the person who has perfect faith, the person who has absolute trust, doesn't have to be matzdikadin unless somebody dies, unless the worst happens. But if it's not the worst, if it's a loss of revenue, what's money? It looks bad? That could be the greatest bracha. That could be Hashem's way of saving your life. The person who feels that his or her efforts are the actual source of success would certainly be riddled with anxiety. What if it doesn't work? The person who has betochen, no anxiety whatsoever. Hashem is going to give me what is good for me. And if I didn't get it, it wasn't good for me. Seemed like it was. I thought it would be. Hashem decided otherwise. But He's taking care of me. And He knows what's best for me. Rahman when life is lost, we don't say it's best. We make a bracha. The blessing is dayan ha'emet. The true judge, because then we have to accept upon ourselves Hashem's judgment. But with the exception of death, whatever might come our way, even if it seems like a huge setback in what we thought was good for us, can actually turn out to be the greatest blessing. You thought that you would be happier, more complacent, have greater peace of mind with the wealth and riches, and God knew otherwise. He knew that the wealth and riches would rob you of your marriage, of your family relationships, of your own happiness. So God, knowing what's good for you, prevented you from getting the thing that was actually toxic and poison, even if you didn't know it. Seems like a mishap. It looks to us like things have gone wrong. Not so, says the person of Betochen. No anxiety, no fear, no worry, no concern. Hashem's doing what's best for me. I'm relaxed. I'm calm. I do my part and I leave the rest be day Hashem Yisbarach in the hands of the Almighty. In Cain, if so, says Paslechem, Kol Asher whatever Hashem gives me, I accept it with joy because I trust that it's my good. In fact, it's the best thing for me. I should be happy with that. Imagine if this person 
could have known at the time that the loss of revenue would block him from signing that lease and save his life. Today he knows it. Six months ago he didn't. A person with betochen would have said, I lost the deal? Wonderful! Baruch Hashem! This is Hashem's marvelous way of taking care of me, of saving me from something far worse. And so, the alchemist, he's got worries. He's got anxiety. Occupational hazard, workplace accident. Who knows what might go wrong despite all of my well-laid plans, he says. The person of Betochen? Who knows? I know that everything that happens is going to be letovati. I have no anxiety. I therefore have no worry. And so I'm able to live the menucha with peace. The Paslechem says, menucha. Menucha means I can be relaxed about the pace of work. I don't work myself to death. I'm not overworking. I'm not being destroyed from inside because of my endless workaholic habits. Because I'm not going to make any more money if I kill myself working. And there's a sense of hashkate. Hashkate means stillness or calmness, says the Paslechem. That refers not to the quantity of time you work, but to the quality of life you experience. Negadayegiyah, the worries, the niggling concerns, the toil that you invest as it robs you from peace of mind. Let's take a look in the commentary Neda Bar Kodesh. The Neda Bar Kodesh says, and what if something really goes wrong? And what if it doesn't seem like it's a good thing for us all? He says, This is, of course, biblical phraseology taken from the Book of Lamentations. And what if as a result of our own iniquity, of our own failings, of our own shortcomings, of our own inadequacies, that we've earned the opposite of Hashem's blessing. That all of a sudden, unpredictable evil stares us in the face. And he says, quote, Ein There is no hour without something bad happening in it. Ein rega pega. There is no moment without some kind of assault without some kind of hit being taken. He says, You will not think of it. You will not look at it in a bad fashion. Why not? For two reasons. Number one, Because Almighty God proverbially sits in His Seter in his secrecy, in what we would call the notion of the mystery of divinity. Yoshev bet Seter Elyon, we say, God sits in his mysterious and unknown ways. In the uh, translation here in the Kahas Tehillim, 
to the pious person, Yoshev Beseser Elyon Betzel Shada Yislenon, who dwells in the hidden place of the Most High, who abides in the shade of the Omnipotent. In other words, he's able to dwell in the hidden place. He lives in that hidden space. And therefore, because he's able to dwell or live in that hidden space, he knows that he knows that Hashem will proverbially cover him with his pinions and that he will find refuge under those metaphoric wings. That's number one. Number two, And even if something really bad happens, he says, If it's really bad, he still accepts it with a sense of joy. And he says, This could be dugmas nochem ishgamzu. If you want to understand how to accept something that happens that's terrible with joy, this would be in the paradigm of Nochem Ishgamzu. This is a very powerful statement. It's very interpretive. In other words, what the Neda Bakaydish believed is that we can only understand the words of the Shara Betochen if we are to view them through the prism of the story of Nachum Mishgamzu. And this, my dear friends, is the story. In the Gemara Mesechet Sanhedrin, it's also found in the Gemara Mesechet Tanit, and I will study a little piece of Gemara together with you now, along with some of the commentary. The Gemara tells us, on Daf Kufches, on page 108, on the very bottom in the last line, Ahmed Beis of side 2, Nochum ish gamzu, Nochum, who said this too is good, or this too, Haverogel. It was his practice, or he was accustomed. That whatever would happen to him, Omar gamzu litoiva, this too, this is for the best. The Maharsha tells us that because he was accustomed to saying Gamzu Latova, and every time, and at every turn, that people actually nicknamed him Nochem Gamzu or Ish Gamzu, the man who said this too. Yoimachada, so it happens one fine day. Bo Lishaduri Doiran Lekeser. The Jewish people living in the land of Israel, this takes us back approximately 2,000 years, living in the land of Israel under the jackboot of the Roman occupation, about 1950 years or so, after the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, or perhaps maybe just before it, but we were living under Roman occupation for quite a few years, and the Jewish people had a very difficult time with their Roman taskmasters, being a vassal state of a mighty and evil empire wasn't a picnic. So one day, the Jewish population in Israel, the indigenous people of Israel, who are suffering under Roman occupation, the Romans haven't yet nicknamed, or should I say, 
cursed Israel with the name Palestine. That was later. That's what Hadrian did. That happens decades afterwards. It's still called Judea or Israel. But at this point, they're under Roman occupation and they suffer terribly with it. So, the children of Israel, the Israelite living there, the Jewish people, want to send a gift, Lekeser, to the Caesar. Okay. Pure later. <laughs> FedEx. No, not a good idea. Omri, they said, Bahadi man nishader. They said to themselves, In whose hand should we send this? As Rashi says, Biyad mi nishlach. For who? Who should we send this with? And the Gemara then answers, They said, We'll send it nishader. We'll send it in the hands of Nachum Ishgamzu. Why? The Gemara says, because this was a fraught mission. Because he was a person who was accustomed to the paranormal. Amazing things happened to Nachum Ishgamzu. By the way, the Maharal of Prague in the Siv HaBetochen, in the Path of Betochen, says it was because of his Betochen that amazing things used to happen. Because he had such rock-solid trust in Hashem, he actually brought forth remarkable paranormal experiences, as Betochen is wont to do. So what happens? Now, it seems... We don't know this. The Gemara doesn't tell us this with certainty, but it seems from the narrative of the Talmud that there was some kind of decree that was leveled against the Jewish population and somebody had to mitigate, if not have the decree removed altogether. These decrees were cruel, vicious, oftentimes, or perhaps all the time, totally uncalled for, unhelpful, causing a tremendous amount of pain and suffering for local populations. And Maybe it was a, an enormous tax. Maybe it was some kind of crushing financial burden or tribute that the Caesar had placed on the people, but it wasn't good. Maybe it was something else. We don't know. That part of the story has not been preserved. We have to assume that that was part of the narrative. And that's why they, they felt that it wasn't just about sending a gift. This was a diplomatic mission. But in those days, diplomacy came along with a lavish gift. And then, perhaps, the regent, ruler or Caesar, would be prepared to listen. There's something similar which is found in the Gemara Mesechet Me'ila on page 17. Over there, the Gemara tells us an, about specifically about a certain gezerah, a certain terrible decree that the Jewish community in Israel was suffering from. And they sent, this is in a later generation, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, they sent him to Rome. And the Gemara says, why? Because he was Malumid Benisim. Because Abshimim Bayachai was living in a miraculous space. Statistics, the predicted, accustomed or expected outcome had nothing to do with Abshimim. So, based on the story in the Gemara Mesechet Me'ila, we can assume that the story about Nachum Ishgamzu taking place two generations or three generations prior probably was also about the same thing because they were looking for the same qualities. So, what happened? Well, the Gemara says, Kimoto lahahu de Yura, when he reached 
a particular inn, a place to stay over. This is quite a journey from Israel or Judea all the way off to Rome. Bo Lemivas. At that time, he wanted to spend the night. Amrulei, those who were in the proprietors of the inn, as Rashi says, when he, come, when he came to that, that inn, that hotel, he wanted Lemevas Lolun to spend the night. So they asked him, Maybe it was their protocol. They needed to know what was being brought in. Is it contraband? What is it? What do you bring with you? What is it, that, that package, that large case that you carry with you? Ibn Nachum, who was a very honest man, he said, well, straight up. He said, what is it? This is Amr Lahu, he says, Ka moivilna karoga lekeser. I am bringing, I'm transporting tax, a tribute to the Caesar. Now it is possible, I can't say probable, but it is possible that Ibn Nachum assumed that the very fact that he was bringing tribute to the Caesar would instill the fear of the Caesar in these people. They wouldn't mess around with the Caesar. Komu balayla, but that didn't work. In other words, he took the natural means. He told them, he didn't just say it's gold, he, he mentioned the Caesar's name. Typically, people would be afraid of the Caesar. And you'll soon see why this is an important like, detail in the story. Komu balayla, they woke, they got up in the middle of the night, like thieves, not like, they were thieves. And Sharinu Lesifte. At that point, when they woke up in the middle of the night and surreptitiously opened the straps or the seal on this case, the sealed case, Vishaklu they took all of the tribute, precious metals, precious stones. What is tribute? Things of value. So they took all of these fancy, expensive gifts for themselves. Umilanu afara. And they filled the case with soil, silt, stones, rocks. The Gemara does not record Reb Nachum reacting to this. The Gemara simply takes us to the end of the journey. When he reached there, he was presented before the Caesar. I guess he presented his credentials. He was granted an audience. They opened this bejeweled case and they found, they found rocks, soil, sand. Omar, The Jews are making a mockery of me. This is terrible. Afkuhu lemiktele. Reb Nochem was being taken away to execution. Omar, as this is happening, he says, Gamzulatev, this is all good. He didn't die yet. He didn't say, now I have to make a bracha, because we know even when a sharp sword rests on your neck, you don't give up hope. He didn't give up hope yet. So he's being taken to the execution. He says, this is great. This is good for me. Remember, 
the din, the judgment had not yet been passed. He didn't cross that threshold yet. And he maintains pristine, perfect faith and trust that what Hashem is doing is for his very best. Suddenly, also Eliyahu. Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, this is not like in the previous episode where Elijah's a man running from the jackboot of a vicious king who wants to execute him from a queen who is baleful intent. No, now Elijah is the, the angel Elijah. He's his terrestrial passing, if you want to call it that, or his leaving this world in a flash of light has long ago happened. But Eliyahu Anovi now, on occasion, assumes a terrestrial form, as Eliyahu Anovi is wont to do. So Eliyahu Anovi suddenly appears. He appeared like some Roman senator. He said, Caesar, your royal highness, do you think that the Jews are insane? They would, they would send a, a mission to mock you? He says, Maybe this is some of the sand, the soil, the silt that's left from the times of Abraham. What's the times of Abraham? That was the story of Abraham's battle against the axis of four mighty kings, where at that time, Avram Avinu threw the soil, threw the sand, and in a miraculous way, he's throwing straw, and the straw turns into arrows. So they stayed his execution. Baduk va'ashkechochi. They did indeed try, make a little experiment with the earth. And they saw indeed. Unbelievable. You throw the soil and it turns into ballast. It turns into arrows, into spears, into swords. The Gemara records the rest of the story. Hava mechuza, there was a, a territory. For some reason, the crack Roman troops just couldn't conquer. Maybe it was high ground, well fortified. They didn't seem to be able to conquer this one territory. And so, Shodu Mahu Afra, they sent this secret weapon off to the armed forces who were arraigned, there arraigned at the front. And they were able to capture. Sorry, the Gemara says, what was the result? The result was, they took Reb Nochum into this tr treasure houses of the Roman Caesar, and they said to him, take whatever you want. In other words, we can't pay you. We can't even give you a gift that is as valuable is what we have received from you. And so, the Gemara tells us, Milaya lasifta dava. Nachum filled the case with gold. Now, I have to tell you that with regard to the business of whether Nachum Ishgamzu knew or didn't know, there are differing schools of thought. It doesn't speak to us about Nachum's reaction. And it doesn't say that he said Gamzu Lateva. So according to the Gevura Sari, 
He says, it's impossible to conceive of the notion that Nachamish Gamzu would have opened the case and found soil and then just cold-bloodedly continue along his journey and go to the Caesar and present him with a case full of, full of soil and sand. That, I mean, that's, that's like suicide. It's impossible to conceive of such a thing. So he said, they must have sealed it and he knew nothing. He was as surprised as they were when they opened the case. However, the Yadrama says otherwise. He says Nachum did realize something was wrong. But at this point, there was no reason to go home. The decree had been issued. The die had been cast. He had been sent on his mission. And he was a man of faith. So he just proceeded along. Didn't bat an eyelash. The Maharal of Prague in the Nesiv Betochen that I mentioned earlier says clearly that this is a paradigm of Nochemish Gamzu's Betochen. Because he had that Betochen, he was saved. Oh, by the way, when he came back to the inn, they said, oh, you're back? <laughs> what happened? He said, oh, very, everything went great. What they, what they give you? He said, oh, they filled my case with gold. They said, really? He said, wow, who knew? We thought we were giving him worthless earth. We didn't know this was valuable earth. And so they filled boxes of earth and they themselves set off for Rome. And when they came and presented tribute, boxes filled with earth, they were summarily executed. They said, no, no, it's magic. But it wasn't. Because, of course, there was nothing special about that earth or soil. It was Hashem's miracles. From the Maharal's perspective, it was the betochen. It was... Excuse me. It was the rock-solid faith that he had in Hashem that brought about these miracles. That's what the Nedeb HaKadosh is telling us. He says it looks bad. Now you have to maintain your faith when everything seems to be going backwards. Nochem had no idea or clue of how things could possibly work out. In fact, it was impossible to fathom. He's going to go to the Caesar and present him with a case that's filled with garbage. He's asking to have his head handed to him. Nachum had faith. They opened up. They said they're going to execute him. Gamzula Teva maintains his samfroy. He never loses his cool. He's calm. He's collected. He's not anxious. So the Nedeb HaKadosh says, this is exactly what Rabbeinu Bachai is speaking about. My dear friends, you want peace of mind? You want tranquility? Here's the methodology. This is the formula. This is not for the faint-hearted. There is nothing easy about this. If you think this is a get-faith-quick scheme, think again. <laughs> the classes I teach are long and they're thorough. The path we're on is fraught, difficult, and challenging. But it will lead us to the right place if we stay the course. It is fascinating to me that Rabbeinu Bahaya closes his argument here with a quote from Psalm 23. As it is stated by, in Psalms, he lays me down amid green pastures and he leads me beside serene waters. What does this have to do with the notion of betochen? everything. The Rebbe, summarizing the words of the Arizal that are found in his Lakuta Teira, and the Likutim of the Sefer Arizal, as well as is found in the Sefer Kabbalah, Eimek HaMelech, the Rebbe says, and this is in a mimer 
with the words Mizmer Ladovid from 1956. Quote, The content of this particular psalm is Shadovid HaMelech Meshabech HaSakodesh Baruch Be'inyin HaParnosa. This is about livelihood. You heard right. Psalm 23 is about livelihood, about surety, security, trusting Hashem that He will give you your livelihood. Hashem roi, Hashem is my shepherd. Kiloimer, in other words, God is the one who provides for me, just like a shepherd provides for the sheep. Just like the shepherd takes the sheep to a good area of pasture. Lemira Tev, Lemira Shomin, to a place that is rich in nutrients, to a place that is, if you will, filled with goodness, that provides the sheep everything they could possibly need. Afa Kodesh Baruchu, so with regard to Hashem, it says, Binoiz Desha, and not only in green pastures. But furthermore, Hashem not only gives us what we need, but He leads us besides serene waters. In other words, He gives us peace of mind. Hashem will give us what we need without fear, without concern, without anxiety, without worry, if we're ready to accept it that way. If you look in the actual verse, fascinatingly, you'll see that Rashi tells us that because his of because he begins metaphorically talking about being provided for, sustenance, he uses the parable, the metaphor of a sheep or an animal who has to be shepherded. So therefore, we talk about God as a shepherd, and that's what we're talking about, green pastures. It's not to say that God will take us and ask us to eat grass, and not turning us into sheep. It's a metaphor. In the same way that the shepherd provides for his sheep, Hashem provides for his children. We are Hashem's sheep. He is our shepherd. The shepherd brings them to a rich, green, and verdant pasture. God brings us to a wonderful place from which we can find our sustenance. And it's al menuches. It's in a way which is calm. It's in a way which is serene and peaceful. Rashi says that this particular psalm was composed by King David, Biyar Choros, in a forest known as the Choros Forest. And he says, Lomo Nikra Why was it called Choros? because it was as dry as pottery. In other words, there was no greenery. The soil was entirely dried out. There was no pasture. And in order to provide for David HaMelech, Hashem turns this desert forest into a lush and beautiful pasture. Mituv shalom haba with the goodness of the world to come. And King David understood that this was a metaphor for life. Not for him, but for every one of us. It fascinated me particularly to see that in the Yalkut Shimoni, the idea of these still waters and of these verdant pastures are juxtaposed to the 40 years in the desert 
in which the Jewish people left Egypt behind as they moved into the Promised Land. It's so fascinating to me because just before, Rabbeinu Bechaya was speaking to us about the manna. And now, he's speaking about the green pastures. The Yalkut Shimoni says, Show Rebbe Lazar as Rebbe Shimon. Rebbe Lazar asked his father, Rebbe Shimon, when the Jewish people left the land of Egypt, did they take with them the mechanisms required to weave cloth? Because we don't see any mention of the wheel or the, the woof or the, the, weaving, the weaving tools. Amar Leilai, Shimon said no. So Rabbi Lazar says, so how did they have uh, clothes? <laughs> what were they wearing for 40 years? No clothes last for 40 years. A cloth would literally fall apart. Rabbi Shimon said this was miraculous. This was like a, an angelic kind of wardrobe. Literally, the Lord was the tailor. And he quotes a verse, and so Rabbi Lazar says, okay, okay. So there was miraculous cloth. How about the stench? It doesn't say they had a wardrobe. They had one set of clothes. He says, Did they not stink from sweat in a desert? Forty years? It doesn't say they had extra set of clothes. They left Egypt with the clothes on their back. He said, The miraculous waters that hydrated the Jewish people and gave them life-elixing water during their sojourns also produced a plethora of sweet-smelling herbs, beautiful grass, and all kinds of spices. And that's the meaning of binois desha yarbitseini. The air was pungent with the beautiful, sweet-smelling herbs. I guess it either fumigated their clothes or the smell was so sweet that it eclipsed the stench of the clothes that were never changed. The point is, this is how HaKadosh Baruch Hu educated us. The 40 years in the desert was a long four decades in school. In the school of faith. In the school of Betochen. As we described two episodes ago. That's what's going on here. Almei menuchais. Waters that are still the Yalko Shimoni says there are waters that are still and flow beautifully, but you can't drink them. Nice place to be, but doesn't hydrate. There are waters that are sweet, but they don't provide a particularly beautiful meadow or area. And here, there's beautiful water. It provided hydration, and it created a marvelous atmosphere. In other words, relax. Be calm. Be at peace. You're in Hashem's hands. Trust HaKadosh Baruch Hu. 
and only good things will come your way. The faith itself you exhibit becomes the powerful envelope that delivers your salvation. I recently received a fascinating Sefer. It's a Sefer that the Gerer Rebbe, the Imri Emes, had with manuscripts of commentary on Tilim from the Arizal, from Reb Chaim Vital, and commentary from the Imri Emes. Pardon me, commentary from the Sfas Emes, who was the Rebbe of Ger. The Ger Rebbe in his commentary, Sfas Emes, says on Psalm 23. You've got to listen to this. It's actually unbelievable. The Sfas Emes said that he heard from his grandfather, who is known as the Chedusha Harim, the founder of the Ger dynasty of Tzadikim, of the Ger Hasidus, that he said that when Yirmiyahu, when Jeremiah said in chapter 17, verse 7, and we talked about this verse already many an episode ago, Baruch HaGever, blessed is the man, the person of strength, Asher Yivtach Bahashem, who has betochen. God is his security, his surety, his certainty. He says, the Chidush Arim said, In accordance with the trust you have in Hashem, This brings you your security. In other words, the more sure you are, the more sure you can be. The more certain you are, the more certain you can be. The more you trust that Hashem is taking care of you, the more you can trust. He is indeed taking care of you. This flows along the lines of so many of the things we've already learned about Betochen. It becomes the envelope, the convention, through which Hashem's providence is delivered to us. And this is the meaning. The midah sha'ada moided, moided in lai. It's a Gemara, it's a Mishnah that's found in Mesechet Saita, and it says, in the manner that you measure, so is measured for you. And he explained, Ki it is certain that Hashem Yisbarach is Malaych Aretz that the glory of God fills the world in its entirety. Rak, the problem is that there is Hester, that there is concealment, that there is obfuscation, like the idea of exilic displacement. And so godly beneficence has to come through lowly and what seems to be dark vessels, mannerisms, in which Hashem conceals Himself entirely. Hashem is doing everything, but you'd never know it. It gets delivered in very, very confusing packaging. He says the meaning of a midah, midah represents vitality, energy. Chayusei is barich. The way it is framed in the syntax of nature. Betoich 
and in accordance with how you actuate your faith and belief in Hashem, came So is meted out to you. If you see past the smokescreen, if you refuse to notice obfuscation, and you continue to look deeply into things to see the providence of Hashem, and you live with that kind of and that sense of surety and security, then you must know that you will see it in an open way. And that, says the Sfasemes, is the meaning of Hashem Roi, if Hashem is your shepherd. If you think that your bed is being buttered by your boss, by your customers, by the economy, by the government, by the powers to be, by the forces of nature, by whatever it is around you that buffet you from side to side, and you believe that that is the source of your sustenance, then that's what you will experience. That's the way it will seem. But if you live with a sense of certainty, Hashem Roi, God is my shepherd, Hashem provides me. In that case, Loi Echzer then nothing will be missing. That's the kind of peace and tranquility that is Shabbat-like. And he says, the problem is that from Shabbat, it has to come into the work week. But if you observe Shabbat properly, and this is also so fascinating that he links this to Shabbat because when, as we talked about, the Rebbe says that the lesson of the Jewish people with the manna had everything to do with Shabbat. The manna fell every day, no pantry, no security, no guarantee for tomorrow, always looking up, and on Shabbat, a double portion fell. And you had to know that on Shabbat, everything would be fine and Hashem would provide for you. And that is the meaning of observing Shabbat in our day and age. It is the most powerful statement that a Yid makes, Hashem provides for me. And if the Almighty says, I don't work on the seventh day, then I don't work on the seventh day. And from whence will Parnassah, sustenance, prosperity come? That comes from Hashem. I do my part, and then I receive His blessings. The Sfasema says, that's the meaning of Tarech Lefana Shulchan. That's, He sets a table before me. That the table, the set table, represents the blessings being taken from a loftier spiritual reality and brought down into an actual table that is set before you, which is in the metaphor that which enables you to be actually sustained. You get your meal. And that means Hashem takes it from the peace and the beauty of Shabbos and gives it right to you. How incredible. So the Sfasemis read Psalm 23 like Rabbeinu Bechaya read Psalm 23. A chapter of Tilim speaking about Betochen. And that mimer and with this I will conclude that Rebbe goes on to analyze the psalm in a fascinating way. The Rebbe says that HaKadosh Baruch Hu provides for every single Yid. He takes each and every one of us to a miratoiv, to an abundant pasture. He brings us to a place of Nachalimoyim with beautiful brooks and streams. And he says, Hashem, so to speak, provides for us. And the Rebbe links this to the Medrash that introduces us to the greatest shepherd of all time, Moshe Rabbeinu. And Moshe Hayaroya. What does that mean, the Medrash says? He provided for the sheep as the sheep might need. 
Hashem will provide for us as we think we need, or as Hashem knows best what we need. And therefore, lay echser. It is not possible we should actually be missing something that we really need. If it seems that something's missing, that's a gift. Think of the story of the fellow who lost the business deal and gained his life. Think of Nachamish Gamzu. Had he brought, as the Rebbe says in Lekutasichas Chilik Beis, had he brought gold and silver, he either would have succeeded or not. The Caesar wasn't impressed with gold and silver, rubies, diamonds, and gems. He had an abundance of that. But it's miraculous sand that can win a war. Now that's another story. It didn't turn out okay. It turned out much better. And the reason for all this is Hashem Roi. Because Hashem is my shepherd. When Hashem is your shepherd, the Rebbe says, Loyechser. And that's why the Gemara says that this was recited on the night of Pesach as a portion of Hal HaGodel along with Psalm 114, along with Psalm 136, Psalm 23, or this portion of Psalm 23 would be recited, as the Maharsha explains, quote, Kivan Shahashem Ro'i, because Hashem is my shepherd, which means, Shahu Mashgiach, that Hashem supervises with His individual providence, Vizon, and He sustains and gives parnasa as kol ha'olam, because I believe that God provides for the whole wide world, Gamani I too will be missing nothing. And this idea of Hakadosh Baruch Hu giving us Hashem Roi means that the level of sustenance is coming from Hashem Roi, from the deepest levels, from the highest and loftiest, the most exalted dimension of divinity. What's called Rumay Shalolam. The Rebbe quotes a Zohar that speaks about David who assumed and actually expected and understood that his sustenance was of Le'ela, was coming from a higher place. David Tolli of Le'ela. He hinged his success. He believed that his blessings were coming from an high. Begin the Le'ela Le'pasek La'amen. Because... It came from a lofty source that nothing could stop. And that's the meaning of Hashem Roi Le'echzer. In other words, the idea of the sustenance that we speak about in Psalm 23 is the highest form of sustenance. But this Roi Le'echzer comes on Meimenuchais, when you allow yourself to be calm, cool, and collected, and don't experience anxiety because you trust in Hashem. The Rebbe goes on to quote the teaching from the Ramak, Rabbeinu Moshe Kordaviro, who says, do not make the mistake of thinking that this is a small brook in which the waters trickle, and as such, they're calm or still, but rather it represents a hashba, a tremendous downflow, a huge amount, and yet the waters flow, despite their great volume, in a very calm and serene way. Hashem will send us amazing brachas as long as we are calm, as long as we don't exhibit anxiety, as long as we trust in Him. And the Rebbe goes on to explain in this Mimer that there is sometimes a birur b'derech molchama, 
We need to toil. We need to work. And it's challenging. And it's difficult. And it's painful. But we prevail. And then there's a biru bederech menucha. And then there is the way we're able to extrapolate or extract what we need in a manner that is cool, calm, and collected. Parnasa, he says, doesn't have to come in a painful way. It's not true that the person has to be riddled with anxiety in order to receive the sustenance that he or she needs. Hashem promises to give it to us in a way which is calm, in a way which is serene. My dear friends, we have been giving the greatest gift. Stress kills you. That's a fact. Anxiety destroys you. Everybody knows that. We are on a path to rid ourselves of anxiety, of concerns, of worries forever. If only we follow Rabbeinu Bachaya now. If only we continue to move along these incredible illuminated pathways of the Shara Betochen. Binois Desha, we will experience the richest, the most beautiful kind of meadow. A metaphor for sustenance. Almei Menuchais, the calmest, serenest, nicest of ways. But that is in our hands. We have to strengthen our amuna. We have to fortify our faith in our betochen. And this in turn will bring us Hashem's incredible blessings. May we merit to find this peace of mind. May we merit to receive Hashem's bracha in the most wonderful of ways. And may we all together finally be zoicha to welcome an age of universal serenity and peace with the coming of Mashiach. Bimheira will be amenu, amen. Thank you so much for joining today. Keep on coming. If you aren't yet subscribed, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Be sure to subscribe and please take the time to enable your notifications as well. Have a beautiful day.